Hey everybody, welcome to Rust Belt Startup. I'm your host, Ryan Miller. Uh, if it's your first time here, Rust Belt Startup is a podcast that is full of long-form conversations and some toolbox episodes, but a lot of conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, educators, people that are living unconventional lives in unconventional locations. And um, I just want to get right into the the interview today because this is this was wonderful. Uh, I'm just so grateful to have gotten a chance to uh, talk to Kat Velos. Kat is a UX designer. UX is short for user experience. And so we talk about what makes a, a great user experience in a, in a digital product uh, as, as well as in, in products that you, you are interacting with or places that you're interacting with in real life. Um, she's also the founder and leader of the Bay Area Black Designers. It's, a, it's Silicon Valley's largest unofficial employee resource group for black design talent uh, with over 500 members. She's a facilitator, a coach, and she is obsessed with connection. And that's really what we're going to talk about today, connection. I first heard of Kat on Twitter uh, when someone would shared a link to her Connection Club. And it's basically a, a, a weekly Zoom group that meets with people from all over the country, all over the world. And she spins some, some chill house music. And it's an opportunity for you to take some time to connect with other people in your life or yourself. Um, and then she uses uh, part of the time to create connections between other people that are in the group. So it's it's a it's a really interesting way to just try to you know block out some time to make time for important people in your life or or even yourself, which I know a lot of us have not been doing uh, on the regular here. She's the author of two books. Uh, the first is We Should Get Together, The Secret to Cult Cultivating Better Friendships and Connected from Afar, A Guide for Staying Close When You're Far Away. So in, in our conversation, we certainly talk about uh, her origin story and, and user experience, like what makes a good user experience and, and how can we do a better job of designing better user experiences in our businesses, in our apps, in our software. Um, but we also spend a lot of the time really talking about connection and, and building community. Like how do you build a good community? What makes a good community? And probably most important, we talk about connection. How can we make better connections and have more meaningful relationships uh, in our life, even uh, when we're doing it, you know, maybe through Zoom? Kat has, you know, th this this term of platonic longing that I think captures uh, a feeling that a lot of adults um, might be feeling at this time. And, and we talk about this idea of familiar strangers people that maybe aren't your best friends, but they were, they were strangers that you saw on a regular basis uh, in your life. The people at the coffee shop, the person, you know, at the, at the grocery store, the people that we used to interact with on the regular out in the real world, but that were still strangers and it provided a rhythm and a dynamism. Um, what are we doing without, without our familiar strangers? So it's a wide ranging conversation, but it's, it's one that I'm so grateful to have had. And so we're just going to get right into it. Thanks a lot for tuning in. This is my conversation with Kat Fellows. Um, it's, it's like we're now, I'm not in New York city. I'm about four hours North, uh, in, in upstate New York. And we are, uh, I think we're over a foot now today. So we're getting dumped on. And, and uh, so I'm working from home. My, my kids are upstairs. My son is at nap time. So this worked out really well uh, 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 for us to kind of have an at-home cozy day. So um, we'll talk about Connection Club, obviously, uh, a little bit later, which is because that's the thing that, that drew me to you. And um, when I wanted to get information about Connection Club, and I, I kind of just looked you up and tried to see what you were all about, I was just absolutely shocked and amazed at 
all of the different projects that you have under your belt and and your um, your work involving uh, connection and community. And that's something that I think right now we need a lot of. So that was what I wanted to start talking to you about, as well as your, um, you know, we'll cover some some uh, user experience as well as, as a topic that I want to get into. But first of all, you know, thinking about uh, your origin story a, a little bit, can you kind of give us give us that origin story? You're out in in California. How did you how did you get there? And and what is it about California that drew you and and is something that continuously draws people from across the country? Well, I grew up in Florida, and then in my early adulthood, I also moved to Seattle. I spent a long time in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I spent a year in Hawaii, and eventually I chose to come to California um, because, I, first of all, I really like living on the West Coast. I've been on the West Coast about 15 years, and I um, feel like it's like the combination of all the things I want in a place. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, way more sunshine than the Pacific Northwest, but not as hot as Florida. Yeah. Um, and politically and progressively, it's a mix of the values and things I believe in. You know, like I remember at times living in South Florida and it was like unusual to recycle, whereas like here in California, <laughs> it's like, no, everyone recycles. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, living here in the Bay Area specifically, I'm in the East Bay, I feel like the combination of um, like politically, intellectually, socially, like I feel really at home here. I feel as a black person, as a queer person, as a creative person, like it's, I'm not, I don't stick out here, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of that here and it feels like a really uh, supportive environment for the kinds of things I want to create and bring into the world. You know, I, I think it, being here in in a Rust Belt city, um, my my day job is I, I I work with folks that are trying to start up startups or start up small businesses, and um, you know I, I hear from a lot of folks in in economic development and and um, uh, in in government really. You know, they, they look to everyone wants to build the next Silicon Valley. You name your your city, right? And um, and I think I wanted to get get a sense uh, um, from you really. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, amazing things that happen. I think be, because of uh, as as Silicon Valley is what Silicon Valley is, the barrier is what it is. But there's a lot of challenges too. And and, and um, I wanted to know if you could kind of speak to um, your experience. You know, what what surprised you in terms of w- when you really kind of put down roots out west in in the Bay Area? What surprised you uh, on on the good end and the and the bad end when it when it comes to community and connection? Because that's a very transient, it can be a very transient community, right? It can, it can. And I think I didn't quite understand that before I moved here. Um, it's extremely transient and even more so before the pandemic, obviously. Like a lot of people have moved away during the pandemic because it's a very expensive place to live also. Yeah. Um, but very transient. And that I mean that in the way of both people moving in and out of the region and also people moving around within the region, like whether it's where they live and before certainly a lot of like long commutes before like the explosion of remote yeah. work. Um, and with all of that movement comes a certain level of instability when it comes to building connection and community because, you know, connection and community generally... Uh, functions the best if people stick around for a while. Right. Uh, I went to more going away parties in my first few years here than I ever had in my life. <laughs> I'd make a friend and six months or a year later, they're like, I'm moving away. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and so I definitely did not anticipate that moving here. And that was one of the challenges that ultimately led me to being very curious about adult friendship and other people's experiences of it and writing a book about it. Um, and then there were other things that were like really amazing that I loved about being here. You know, it's certainly 
is the reputation it has for innovation and creativity is true. Um, and I think it felt like, so like when I was in high school, I was like the art nerd. Like I was into mm-hmm. like learning and being nerdy. And I also was like into art and kind of being like a little counterculture and like the blend of that in the Bay area was like, Oh, this is where all my people. Right, right. <laughs> um, and that was like a real high here because it's like, Oh, I'm really compatible with a lot of the kinds of people mm-hmm. who are around here. And that was a, a huge benefit. Um, and you know, on the, on the, again, there's ups, there's downs. One of the interesting things I found in my research for the book had to do with the clustering of certain personality types around the country. Like folks in the Midwest have a different cluster of personality types than in New York or in uh, San Francisco or in Texas or like the South or whatever. And um, some of the things that cluster here as well are are really high introversion. I'm an introvert. um, And I would have not thought that in just the limited time. A lot of people are surprised. (laughs) Um, I value social connection quite highly because being social is draining for me. Mm. Um, and so I want them to be very high quality, but for a lot of introverts, like who aren't, uh, as attenuated to social connection as I am, or like care about cultivating that in the same ways that I do, it can also be harder to break in. Cause a lot of people are quite satisfied here spending a lot of time on their own. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I think also makes it an interestingly tough place sometimes to establish sure. community. And I found that a lot in the Pacific Northwest too. In Seattle, they have this thing called the Seattle freeze where it's like people are polite, but they aren't necessarily warm and inviting. And I think um, we have that here too. I think we have that here. <laughs> I mean, I interviewed someone for the book and he said, uh, oh, I hope I remember it right. He said here people are cool but they're not warm and back in Mm. the south people are warm but they're not cool or something like that Mm. he said um and i thought that was an interesting way of phrasing it uh because he also moved here from the south so when you you know i guess trying to to blend a little bit in i guess dig a little bit more into that um idea of of community i'm i'm starting to really start to understand a little bit more just the importance of of or, or thinking about more, like what makes a great place? And you can, you can scale that out, you know, from, from what makes a great coffee shop to what makes a great block to what makes a great district, what makes a great city. Yeah. Um, you know, have, wh- what are your thoughts on that? Like, are there, are, is there some, are there in- ingredients that you're like, you know what, this is what you need to create community connection. This is what makes a good place in general that can be, you can apply this to lots of different scenarios. I love this question. Cause I literally think about this kind of thing all the time. Um, And there are a number of different things, right? So one of the things that I perceive as a marker of like a strong community or strong connections is the level of interrelatedness and interactivity between people. And what I mean by that is people don't just uh, socialize or acknowledge the people in their in-group or their little clique. People are open to being engaged and engaging with a variety of different people from a variety of different walks of life from a variety of different backgrounds in random and um, flexible ways. So when I think about my favorite coffee shop um, back in when I was in college, for example, it had a mix of college students, local like townies, because it was like a small town. Um, there was always like two or three guys who were like maybe always drunk at the counter. At the co- um, this is a coffee shop? It was a coffee shop slash okay. cafe. Yeah. So they had like beer and wine too. Okay. Um, there was also like um, 
older folks who were like hanging out and reading on like the couch or whatever on the side. So it was this mix of like intergenerational, different stages of life, different ways of being. And we were all just like mashed together in the same room, you know? And when I think sometimes now about like what feels kind of soul deadening about a lot of spaces that are like too perfectly curated, is like you go in a place and it's like, oh, this is all people between the ages of 27 and 31 and they're all on mac computers and like (laughs) everyone has the same kind of job or whatever and it's frankly it's kind of boring and so i really like spaces that involve like such a diverse mix of people that we are exposed to difference and surprise and challenge and delight and connection and it feels really good to find those experiences of connection or belonging in a space where there's such a wide variety of people how hard uh, let, let me follow up on that because how hard is it to turn the titanic you know one of the things that that we that i've seen before is you know um uh, a proprietor opens up let's let's use a let's use a a, a martini bar as an example right we've seen this this happen mm-hmm. before here they open a martini bar and they're like we're going to have well, this is going to be a, a a martini crowd a nice you know a night a nightlife um uh, uh experience with you know uh, dj's and all those kinds of things and the first wave of clientele uh that comes are giant sports fans so now you're a sports <laughs> bar right and like like this is this is a real thing and i'm using kind of a fictitious example but like sure. this i've seen this happen and so now you're a sports bar how do you you know in your user experience and putting putting your user experience had a hat on is it possible to turn the titanic at that point like once you're once you are can you reinvent yourself as as a place of of welcome and if so what advice would you give that that person well, this is a really interesting question, and I think it's a funny example. I guess one of my questions would be, so first off, any good user experience project generally starts with research to uh, understand, like, who are the people that we're serving? What are their needs? Like, what is the opportunity here? You know, all those sorts of things. So if somebody maybe didn't do any sort of local community market research mm-hmm. or uh, figure out what the demand was for a martini bar and they just like decided to open it because it seemed fun uh, not noticing maybe that they were in like a sports college town or something. Sure, sure. Um, maybe a little bit of research would help with that and then the other thing too is there's a part around you know outreaching to find the folks who might want to have what you are offering or what you desire to offer and then there's things you can do like segmenting and saying like certain nights yeah you have like the game on and other nights you're like we're going to play jazz and if people who are into sports don't want to hear jazz music or whatever like they're probably not going to come on that night but having all the jazz playing probably goes better with the martinis you know right um so there's different things like that I don't necessarily think that it's a flaw when you discover that you're appealing to a wider variety of people than you expected. It just might be different than who you sought to serve potentially. Yeah. And it's an opportunity to think about how can you serve those people, or maybe it's a better business model to serve the customers who are beating down your door than, sure, sure. Uh, than the fictitious ones. Can can we talk a little bit about user experiences before we get into connection a little bit yeah, more? Yeah. Um, you know, this is, this is your background and, 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 if we were to start right at the beginning, like what is user experience on on, on the on a very you know base level? How would you how would you talk about user experience? Well, the simplest kind of definition, uh, like typically, if I'm like 
at a dinner party and someone's like, never heard of it. I might say, you know, it has to do with making the apps and websites that we use as user-friendly and intuitive as possible. And when, if someone's like, still like, what does that mean? I'm like, have you ever used an app and it was so confusing, you just wanted to throw your phone across the room? And usually everyone's had that kind of experience or like a website where like, why do I use this form? That is a bad user experience. And so the opposite of that is a good user experience. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned before, it typically does include a lot of research and user testing and prototyping of different ideas to result in um, an experience in a digital product that is intuitive, friendly, accessible, and will not cause harm. And that is uh, the the last thing is often overlooked when a lot of designers are like just wanting to make something beautiful or cute or delightful, but they forget about sometimes the things that are designed unintentionally can be used for harm. And I think it's important to design around those kinds of scenarios as well. What do you mean by harm? Like physical harm? Do you mean like, uh, uh, do you mean, uh, uh, I would say like harm to a community, uh, digital harm? What What do you mean by that? Any number of ways. So for example, a number of years ago, there was a product that was designed for like medical professionals, like doctors and nurses to use uh, to monitor like a patient's vitals and things. Mm -hmm. And it was like on an iPad. But the problem was the way it was designed was confusing or not functional enough such that in the moment, in a moment of crisis, the person using it couldn't figure out like how to operate it. And someone died because of that. So like at the far end of the spectrum, it can literally cause life and death harm in that kind of situation. There's other ways in which uh, more recently, for example, we've seen the way that an app that's designed to just let people like share thoughts and sentences with any number of people in the world can also be used to incite a riot right, right, <laughs> and an right. insurrection, you know, right. and without proper design around moderation uh, of the content, a, a simple app that's just used for sending sentences into the web can be used to attempt it's to weaponized. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. It's weaponized. And so like that is a form of intention of unintentional harm, but is the responsibility of the people who design and run a service like that. It's again. I'm just going back to my experience. Um, a lot of uh, maybe, maybe this is is the the Jurassic Park. You know, b- people are obsessed with whether they could. They don't stop to think to think if they should. Um, yes. But I, you know, I feel <laughs> I feel like user experience. I mean, that's that's the one that always comes to mind. Is is yes. uh, Ian Mal or uh, uh, what was that? Was the actor's name? Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum uh, is my Goldblum moment. But um, you know, thinking about user experience tends to in my, in my limited experience, it tends to be something that kind of um, happens after the fact when, when folks are building out something, something small, or, or that's, that's the budget line item that sometimes doesn't get enough, enough credit. How, how would you advise people to, to, to start thinking about user experience? Does it start with research? Does it start with testing? I mean, does it, or does it start with just asking, are there some fundamental questions that you can ask, you know, like, like, is this beautiful? Do you, do I know what I'm supposed to do here? I mean, what, is there a, a cliff notes or a guidebook you would, you would <laughs> give to someone? Um, there are plenty of resources online and lots of books and things of that nature, uh, particularly from A Book Apart, which is a press that puts out books about this type of thing. Um, but yeah, like at its basic level, I think it's important to do research with the people who you're attempting to serve, as well as those who may be tangentially served or unserved by the thing you're creating. Um, accessibility is really important. So like making sure that it's going to be usable by as many people as possible. You know, a classic version of this is curb cuts, which 
while being designed to help make uh, sidewalks more accessible to folks in wheelchairs, also are make sidewalks better for everybody else, including mm. cyclists and people with strollers and people on crutches or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, think about who it's for, how it can be accessible to as many people as possible, and also to make sure that you're doing uh, research around what are the ways that this could go wrong? What are the ways that this might be used by a bad actor? What are, mm. And how can we make sure to design around that to make sure that it's not accidentally introducing more chaos and confusion and uh, harm into the world. That's, that's great advice. If we look at user experience and kind of getting more into your work in relationships, which is is really uh, at the heart of, of, of what you're doing now, um, can you talk about relationships as it relates to, to user experience design? I think, you know, I, I work with a lot of folks that um, want to know, you know, um, how do how do I do Twitter better? What tool do you use? And and my response is typically like, well, you should start talking to people, you know, like like having a dialogue. Um, is there can you can you give me a, a little a little bit of of um how how you have used I guess let's just segment let's just segue right into your work because you're really your brand now is is obviously still user experience but like um you're you're doing research on relationships and 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 connection and uh, you've built a business around this how did this come about so something that I've always really cared about is connection and finding community. So even when it wasn't my full-time job over the years, it's always something I've done on the side. So there were times where I was working full-time as a facilitator and a community organizer, and that was what I did five days a week. And there were other times where I was working as a designer, and in my free time, I was like running communities or organizing groups and bringing people together um, for a specific purpose. And so this is something that I've really always cared about. And the main difference now is that I am doing it again full time, but I'm not doing it for another company, I'm doing it for my own company. And it's really, gosh, it's like just the most important thing. I mean, yes, everything's important. Climate change is important. You know, healthy food is important. Right, but to right. me, in my life and my purpose, um, this is the thing that I feel called to be of service to the world around. Which is when, when did you know that you were called to be a service? I'm sorry to interrupt you. When did you, yeah. was there a moment? I don't think there was a moment because even when I think back to um, when was the first group or community that I pulled people together for, which was right around like right the year after I got out of college, I ran a spoken word poetry community uh, where I pulled people together to share their poetry and their spoken word every other week for four years. And I did it because I loved writing and I loved being around other poets and I loved pulling people together to share our writing with each other. And so I didn't do it because I was like, I feel called to bring people together. But it was like, I love this thing. Let me go hang out with other people who mm -hmm. love this thing. Um, and that's ultimately what it comes from. It's like we are drawn to connect with each other as human beings. That's how we've survived for so long and, and collaborated and created uh, new things in the world. And so ultimately, and over the years, it's taken a lot of different expressions in my life. But it's just something that for me is such a fulfilling experience of belonging and connection that uh, it's like once you've had it like how could you ever live without it <laughs> it's like once you've had your favorite ice cream flavor like you know it yeah. exists like right, you right, don't right. Have it, you're like it's out there <laughs> and yeah it's kind of like my favorite ice cream flavor but there, there comes a point, and and I don't mean to, to drive this all back to business. That's not my that's not my in, intention with with this conversation. But you know, 
there's, there is a point of, I do this thing because it gives me joy. And then understanding that there is an opportunity that like, like to, you know, you can do this for a living. And there, to me, there seems to be a little bit of a, uh, you have to make a leap um, of, of not just not just trust, but trying to understand the thing that gives you joy is can also be a, can also be a service. It can also be a product. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about what that process was was like for you from going to oh this is a thing that I love to do to like I can do this and I can I can feed myself with it. Well, I also really believe that it's not necessary to turn every single thing that a person is passionate about doing or committed to learning about and expressing into their job. And for many, many years, I purposely did not want to make the things that I felt um, drawn to doing creatively or curiosity driven um, into my work. Because there is like a, it's a very different experience when you do something for money than when you do something not for money. And so I just want to Uh, caveat this is saying like, I don't think that this is necessarily the best way or the only way to do it. And there's a lot of value to not trying to make your your thing into your job. And with that said, um, are you familiar with the concept of ikigai? No. So it's this, there's this drawing, uh, you can Google it, I-K-I-G-A-I. And um, I don't have like the full long description here, but when you look at it with the drawing typically looks like it's like this Venn diagram of what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs, and what you can be paid for. I'm familiar with that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And when you have all of those overlapping, Ikigai is that center overlapping space where all of those things are true. And for me, with this work that I'm doing now, um, I released, I researched and wrote the book because I was intensely curious about the topic and really, really committed to understanding and unpacking it and providing people with tools to solve a problem that I could see millions of people were suffering from, which was loneliness, which we already have at epidemic levels in the United States, and adult friendship, which a lot of people feel some level of dissatisfaction or confusion around. They're like, oh, why is this so hard? Am I the only one? And it's like, no, babes, you're not the only one. Like, here, let me break it down for you. Um, And as a user experience designer, I'm compelled to solve a problem when I see that people are having a problem with it. And so I created that because I wanted to, and it was when I put it out to the world that the world said to me, will you do more of this? We will pay you for this. (laughs) And I was like, oh, let me quit my job then. I'm going to go do this other thing instead. You know, as I was as I was prepping for this interview, um, uh, I I was was reading you know uh, about you and some of the things that you've been involved with and and listened to uh, I, what I thought was a wonderful um, uh, conversation that you had with Jonathan Fields mm-hmm. recently, and um, uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to consciously stay away from from many of those uh, mm-hmm. uh, of that conversation. It was really wonderful, and I've I've met Jonathan before, and he's he's wonderful mm-hmm. as well. Um, uh, but one of the things that that I had in my notes um, that I wanted to see if you would just speak briefly about was this idea of because I think I think it's especially relevant during this this pandemic right now is is you have this idea of, of you call I think you call it a platonic longing. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So this was a phenomenon that I discovered in many of my interviews. I was doing qualitative interviews with many 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 people between 2016 and 2020 around their experience of friendship as adults. 
And platonic longing is the most accurate description I could come up with to describe what people were explaining to me they were feeling. And this was not them putting it in those words, because the thing is, a lot of people don't necessarily feel lonely. They might have uh, colleagues that they talk to every day. They might be in a relationship, have a partner, have kids. Um, And so they're not like lacking for social interaction. So in that way, not necessarily feeling lonely, even though there's this loneliness epidemic going on. But what was missing was this very particular friend-shaped thing. There was a friend-shaped hole somewhere in their life where they were not getting the type of platonic connection that they really wanted and wished for in their life. And platonic, you know, just means non-sexual, right? Mm -hmm. So friendship um, is typically the way that we talk about platonic relationships. So what do we do about that? I yeah, guess is the question. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so, all right, I, we'll direct we will direct people uh, uh, to the book. You know, it's 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 a thing that you know I think is probably becoming, um, at least for folks that we we are interact are interacting with or not interacting with now in our circle. Like this is it's a it's a real problem. And um, may, you know, it, was your is your assessment that it's a problem that that maybe we don't know exists or we just don't know quite how to wrap our fingers and hearts around it? Platonic longing? Yeah. Hmm. Do I think people don't know it exists? I think people who experience it know it exists, Mm -hmm. even if they don't have that name for it. Like we have a name for other kinds of hunger, right? If I'm hungry for food, I say I'm hungry. If you're hungry for a romantic relationship, you know, it's easy mm-hmm. to say you're longing for a partner. If you have a crush on someone who doesn't have a crush on you back, you have unrequited love. But we don't have a word for what it means when you're longing for friendship or that type of, or you have unrequited longing, right? Mm-hmm. For someone that you want to be closer to in friendship. And we don't have exactly words for that. And so that's what I'm attempting to do here with entering into our language now, this phrase of platonic longing, which is the very specific description for that ache for platonic connection, that friendship connection. No, that's, 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 I think that's right. I think the word, there's not a, you're right. There's not a word for it. There's a great way of, of, of talking about it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, what, I think what, it's important oh, to also frame it in a way. And I do this as well in some of the messaging I have, like on Instagram is like, I frame it as a, just a type of hunger. Like you don't think there's something wrong with you if you're hungry for food. It's not like a personal failing. If you're like mm. stomach scrolling, <laughs> it's that's just a great way to think about it. that yeah. your body's like, Hey, I need some food. How about a sandwich? Um, if you find that you have a hunger for connection, that is a good thing that your body, your mind, your heart is telling you, hey, maybe it's time to reach out to somebody. Maybe it's time to reconnect with someone you care about. Um, it's just another type of signal from your body letting you know what you need to be healthy. No, that's that's great. Uh, and, you know, I think what the thing that that where I think you came onto my ra- radar was someone I can't remember who shared the tweet, but there was a, t- a tweet about connection club. And I was like, Oh, what's that? Cause we're in the, we're in the, the middle of this, this crazy year. And, and, you know, in many ways the world is, is just upside down. And I remember going to the website and, and going, yeah, this is, this is something that I should do. And it struck me as a, a, a I, I don't mean this in, a, the way it's probably going to sound, but like it's, it, it, to me, it was, it was, it was a strikingly uncomplicated solution to a complicated problem. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, oh, this makes so much sense. Like you're making time 
for yourself to connect with others in, in, and it doesn't have to be in a structured way, but, but because it's a thing that you do where you're, you're, you're part of something that's larger than yourselves, you're forcing yourself to connect with other people. I thought it was a very, it was very simple and, and, and effective. And, uh, and so, you know, I, 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 this is where we, we met last week. It was, it did my first connection club and it's cool. Can, can you, can you talk about kind of the birth of it and, and, and what connection club is for folks that, that, that don't know about it? Yes, absolutely. And I'll respond to, to your comment about, you know, it, it doesn't seem like a complicated solution or a complicated problem or something like that. Yeah. I don't think a problem needs to be complicated for it to be in need of a solution. You know, so one example of that is a lot of people say they want to eat healthier. That is not complicated. <laughs> right. But right. millions of people struggle to eat healthier or they fail to do it. And so similarly, one of the things I heard a lot in my research and in talking to people is they're like, oh, I need to do a better job of keeping in touch with my friends, but I don't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very simple. But if millions of us don't do it, then millions of friendships are sort of like, fading away or like slipping through our fingers when really frequency and uh, demonstration of commitment are two of the things that are the strongest for keeping friendships healthy and going. So if we have a group where there's a measure of accountability involved in that, hey, we're all going to do this thing together. We all have this mutual goal of being better at keeping in touch with our friends. And we also maybe want to meet some new people. You can combine those goals together and do it together as a group. And sharing a goal and doing a thing together as a group is a fabulous way to attain success, whether your goal is to quit drinking or exercise more or keep in touch with your friends. And as we know, there are groups to help you do all of those things. Um, And so that's kind of the idea. You know, when I first started running it late last summer, um, I did it with the Creative Mornings global community and had like a couple hundred people come to a gathering. About 80 of them took a survey I ran alongside it and people described like why they feel drawn to doing this. And it's a mix of things about wanting to be more intentional to make time to reach out to the people that they care about or feeling like they're slipping into isolation during a time of quarantine and social distance. Um, Again, wanting to have structure, wanting to have accountability for doing the thing you say you're going to do, which is writing to your friends, staying in touch with your friendships, uh, making time for maybe to connect with yourself, maybe you need to write in your journal, you know, yeah. but you don't do it. Um, and so by having this space that is like very, um, I would say not stressful, like a lot of the people who come say it's very relaxing, it's very warm and friendly and inviting. So accountability doesn't always mean like some taskmaster like right, right. following you around. Um, it's done in like a very relaxed and um playful and friendly way. I mean, that's how people describe it who come to it. I'm curious, you know, kind of what you, what your experience was in your first time going. Yeah. I mean, didn't know what to expect. I mean, you kind of lay out how, how the, how it's going to go, you know, we're going to do kind of uh, a section of time where you're going to spend some, some great music and we're all going to turn our cameras off and, and work on that thing that we need to work on. And that could be, you know, that could be writing letters. It could be journaling, could be making art any, any of those things. And then the second half was, you know, you gave some prompts um, to those of us that were there and you okay. paired us off and it, it, it was just, it was an opportunity to, to connect. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, for me, that was, that was, it. I can, I can't remember the, um, uh, the person's name that I, that I, I was paired with, but you know, it didn't feel like networking. Cause I know it's not that, but you know how you, you get that, you get that, um, 
I don't know, that tension in your jaw or your back. It's like, oh God, I got to give out <laughs> business cards, whatever. Like it, there was, there didn't seem to be any pressure to feel interesting or, um, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it was just, it was just this thing where you could kind of just meet someone that you've never met before, whom you will probably never meet again, um, you know, and, and just have a conversation that just, that felt good because I think you know, not only are we kind of living in, in Zoom land uh, right now, um, you know, I, I noticed that like initially there were folks in my circle of friends that we were connecting with. I mean, he's connecting with in, in quotes a little bit um, more than we were kind of pre-pandemic just because mm -hmm. that's how everyone needed to connect. And we're like, oh, we'll do wine over Zoom or we'll do this thing over Zoom, you know? And um, so in some ways that was good, but it's still we've also noticed uh, my wife and I that, that it's still sometimes like hard where it's like, we just don't want to jump on um, and try to, you know, you, you immediately go into the conversation of what's been happening in your life in the pandemic, you know, or, <laughs> you know, like how many people have you not seen or, you know, those kinds of, those kinds of things where, you know, it, it does sometimes drain. And yeah. uh, for me anyway, that was, it was a nice, like, I don't, I don't think I, either of us mentioned, the pandemic at all. I don't think it even came up, yeah. you know, and that was kind of cool. Yeah. So, um, it was, it was different and it was, it was refreshing and, and, um, and I'll, I'll be back for sure. Cool. What have you learned about being the facilitator, uh, of, of this, of this project? Well, one thing for sure is, uh, similar to what you were just describing is like, one thing we know is that with being in this pandemic and not having the opportunity to move about the world as we normally do, people don't get to have the interaction with their familiar strangers, whether that's the people who always used to ride the train the same time that you would to commute to work or um, take the bus at the same time or be at the coffee shop like you don't see your barista. Um, someone I was talking to the other day described when she was living abroad, you know, seeing the guy who she always bought orange juice from on the corner, mm. he was, like squeezing oranges. And like every single day they saw each other. And even though they never like got deep in a friendship, um, there was this joy of the, the lightness of connection. And we don't get as much of that right now. And so I think there's something really useful about uh, Connection Club and other things like it that allow people to have that experience of connection with familiar strangers. Whether, oh. you know, and some of the people in the group, you know, become friends, they see each other over and over again, and maybe they can connect outside the club. But um, it's this opportunity to have familiarity, because that's the other thing I think is really important, is a drop-in event can be cool and exciting and energizing, because it's like, wow, all these new people. But if all, I'll speak for myself here, if all I ever go to are drop-in events, where it's like, I drop in, I see them once, I drop out, I never see them again. I get very tired of that mm. and I start to feel even more invisible because nobody recognizes me. Um, I don't know if you ever watched the show like Cheers like in the 80s or 90s. Yeah, yeah. Like, the thing that was magical about Cheers was like you go to a place where everybody knows your name. <laughs> right, right. And in a way, like I, I love that Connection Club provides a space such that if somebody keeps coming back, like you're going to go to a place where people know your name. Yeah, that's true. You're not That's invisible. True. They recognize you. They care how you've been. They, they're they excited that it's your birthday, you know? Right, um, right. And so that's one of the really sweet things that I think it provides alongside this space, like I said, to do the things that are important to you, to nurture those relationships, to meet new people, all of that. I, you know, I just thought of a question that that is, is kind of spinning off of, of what you just said. And it's really, 
don't know if I'm going to be able to articulate this as, as well as I want to, but you know, when you see connections being made and, 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 you know, you talk about wanting to have deeper connections and, and, um, uh, more meaningful conversations and relationships, how do you feel that, you know, things like, like social media has either diluted or impacted that? And I know that's a really broad question, but I was, what, what jumped into my head was, um, a friend of mine had said, you know, if, if, if I don't, if I, if I don't, when I see the little thing on Facebook that says, Hey, it's Kat's birthday and I don't feel the need to go happy birthday. They're not really my friend. <laughs> wow. That's very, it's, that's very insightful. Like that's that the person, litmus you know? test. It's like, that if is- I'm not even going to do that, we are not really friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think social media has a lot of benefits and drawbacks as well. Um, and one drawback that I have that I sort of talk about in the introduction of the book is that it's reduced the word friend to like describe every single kind of relationship you have mm. from like the kid you were in eighth grade, like math class with that you haven't talked to since then, except you recognize them on Facebook to your best friend that you would give a kidney to. And mm. and on social media, they, they have the same label, friend, right? Um, not the same. And it's also useful, I think, at helping people not feel as alone. Like, let's say if you move far away and you haven't yet established friendship or community in your new space, it's nice to recognize people that you know from back home or something like that on social. You know, a friend of mine did that when she moved out of the country for a year and she was like, oh my gosh, I'm so lonely. Being able to see my friends back home online keeps me sane. Mm. And on the other hand, there's a lot of drawbacks I find to social media. And I discuss this in the book where it creates this mirage connection, this like uh, illusion of connection sometimes simply by uh, being like voyeurs on each other's activities. We think we connected with them, but all we did was look at a picture they posted or like heart a tweet that they wrote, you know? Um, And that's not the same thing as like totally having a like, more authentic moment of connection. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but I'm just saying like, it's important to say like, do these things count the same to you? And if, if it's not entirely fulfilling for you to live an entire friendship in that way with your closest people or the ones you want to be closest to, then take it a step further, mm. you know, go offline with them, follow up. Like if you see that they got a new job, like don't just put a heart on it. Like send them a message. It's like, Hey, I'd love to hear the story of how you got your new job or what you're excited about or you know, what the interview was like or anything Mm. like that. Cause there's usually a behind the scenes that people aren't sharing online. That's the real stuff. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. Getting a chance to have a conversation about that is a way to take that friendship to a deeper place. What do you think makes, you know, if if we zoom out from, I'll just call it a a one-to-one relationship or, or, uh, you know, thinking about community a little, a little bit, um, what makes a community work? And specifically when it comes to like, you know, being resilient, um, I think about, you know, a lot, a big part of what I do for a living is, is create a community or created a community. And, um, with the, with the pandemic, like a lot of that has gone, I don't want to say it's gone away, but it's kind of gone dormant. And it's maybe think about like, what are the elements that make, that make a community resilient, whether that's online, offline, some combination, you know, in between, um, and anything that you that you would uh, say, yeah, these are the ingredients of a, of a thriving, resilient community. Yeah. So certainly mutual respect as a baseline, you know, having mm. 
agreements around respect and how people treat each other in that space is so important for psychological safety. Uh, then beyond that, you know, reciprocity between members, having some kind of shared identity or shared commitments that knit, knits people together um, and says, like, this is who we are together. This is what we have in common. And this is what our common goals are even. And then also having, as I mentioned before, with reciprocity, like a space for people in the community to give and receive support to each other, to ask and answer questions for each other so that they don't feel like, you know, little individual islands like floating out to sea alone. Mm. Uh, sometimes that reciprocity also results in collaboration, you know, doing things together. But sometimes just as a matter of being in a uh, mutually respectful relationship where each person shows that they care about the other people who are there when it's possible to share experiences. That is another thing that really helps people bond and connect uh, in a community or a friendship. So all of those sorts of things. There's a really good book as well, if you want to read more about this, called Building Brand Communities by uh, Carrie Melissa Jones and uh, Charles Vogel. It's a really, really hmm. good book if you want to learn more about that. So just typing that down. Um, what do you do to, to, to kind of nourish yourself? You know, what communities are, are you a part of um, beyond Connection Club? What, what are you doing to get through this pandemic? Yeah, there's lots of ways to be in community too. Like I think sometimes... Uh, we consider like, oh, community means like you're like a card carrying member. Like mm -hmm. you, you've got like your proof of your badge that you're in there. But it doesn't always have to be that way too. Like some some community uh, partnerships or connections or relationships are um, loose and amorphous and they form very organically. So for example, um, one community that I am now a part of is like the community of people who run communities. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Many of them do work at companies and they're called community managers and things like that. Many of them run communities offline in their free time, et cetera. Um, some of them do it in their own business the way that I do. But people who care about and cultivate community is a group of people in the world. And I'm really happy and proud to be a part of that group. Um, there's also, to, in some extent, I'm a member of the design community or the UX community. I'm a member of like the community of people who uh, care about social wellness, right? Uh, people who have written books. I'm a part of the author community. And then a subset from that is like authors who write about friendship and connection, for example. Mm -hmm. um, certainly as a facilitator, I love being a part of my facilitator community. And there's like, whether that's, you know, a, a continually growing group of people who like take the same trainings I take or share ideas with each other and share resources. It's lovely to have colleagues and collaborators who uh, practice similar kinds of work. Um, Many folks who are artists or makers also know that it's lovely to be a part of those kinds of creative communities, um, which I am as well. And so there's lots of ways to find a sense of belonging around some type of shared purpose, shared practice as well. I like the shared practice. Yeah. Yeah. That's I find great. shared practice even to be more fulfilling than just shared identity because I've been a part of identity groups before and it's like, cool, like this particular trait is similar about us, but it doesn't mean the other things in our uh, emotional being or the way that we live in the world is similar. And so I find shared practice to actually be extremely unifying and connecting. Oh, that's great. Um, I want to be super respectful of your time. And I just wanted to, to ask you a, a, a couple of final, final thoughts. You know, what, what happens now? We've been in Zoom land for a year now. Um, <laughs> any, any thoughts on the, on the short-term or long-term implications of, of this, this period of isolation, you know, is this going to come ripping back, um, you know, or is this going to, have we, have we lost something along the way, do you think? I don't think we've lost something along the way. Um, I think that we've gained 
a lot in this time. You know, we have gained a deeper appreciation for proximity with our people in this time of social distance. Um, and I think it'll be a long time till people forget, you know, mm. how much a hug matters, how yeah. much it means to see your friends smiling, not just with their eyes above their mask, but on right. their face. Um, you know, when we think about how lovely it used to feel to share space or to sit next to each other or to share a meal, like those things feel real far away right now. But I don't think that we've lost them or lost our appreciation for them. I think we've gained appreciation in this time of not being able to have it kind of like supply and demand <laughs> like the supply right. is real low so <laughs> i think the demand is gonna be real yeah. high but i do think it'll be a um gradual like weaning back onto that particularly as like vaccine rollouts and etc it's not going to be a light switch and i think that also the different ways that um for health reasons and and uh, needs to be careful around how infection can continue mm. to spread and travel. It's going to be a slow process, I think, to get back to a place where we had that sense of closeness and ease of interaction that we had before. But I feel real hopeful it's coming back. And I, I sincerely hope it'll be a long time before we ever let ourselves forget how much connection matters. I hope so too. That's a that's a great way to uh, uh, to end this. And so th the books are We Should Get Together and Connected from Afar. Um, where's the best place for people to connect with you, Kat? Uh, yeah, so I so there's a couple things. So one is I do a weekly newsletter, which folks can sign up for at my website, we should get together.com. It's wonderful, by the way. Like it's oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I share different resources on there about taking care of your friendships, your community, yourself, and also like generally how to be a better person in, in relation to all that. Um, and then on social media, I'm more so on Instagram sharing uh, same kinds of content at catvelos underscore author. And on Twitter, at Kat Velos, it's kind of a grab bag. I might be talking about friendship. I might be talking about cauliflower recipes. You never know. <laughs> it's a feature, not a bug. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. You can find more about Kat uh, at her website, katvelos.com. We'll link that up in the description. And uh, you should definitely check out her books, We Should Get Together and Connected From Afar. They're available at her website or at weshouldgettogether.com. I really want to thank Kat for her time. Uh, she's been making the podcast rounds lately, and uh, I didn't think that she was gonna gonna write back. She's she's a big deal, and I'm really happy that she uh, uh, spent some time with me today. So, thanks, Kat. You're awesome, and uh, and make sure that you check out all of Kat's uh, websites. We should get together.com is the site for her books and her projects, and uh, catvelos.com is her personal site where you can learn more about her and her work. So I will see you all on the next episode of Rust Belt Startup. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, this was a good one. All right. Have a great week, everybody.